Okay, good evening. So we are, as was mentioned, we are approaching Purim rapidly. It's almost upon us. We have this Wednesday night, we have next Wednesday night, and then the following Wednesday night, two weeks from now, will be Purim night. And uh, by then we'll be hearing the Megillah instead of just learning about it. So, uh, so we'll try to get ourselves as prepared for that exciting time as possible. And so we'll pick up the story of Megillah's Esther tonight from chapter seven. And just to remind ourselves where we left off. So Esther had invited Haman and Ahasuerus to a, a feast. And then when Ahasuerus asked her, what is it that she's looking for? She said, I'm going to, I don't want, I want you to come back for another feast. She wasn't ready to, to tell him yet. Meanwhile, the entire episode involving Mordechai, Ahasuerus realizing Mordechai saved his life, he had to reward him. Haman comes to try to get Mordechai hung, get permission to hang Mordechai. In the end, Haman is riding Mordechai around on the horse. He goes home, he's all upset, and his family warns him and they say, you know, you know, you have to realize who you're who you're messing with. If Mordechai is one of the Yehudim, if he's a Jew, if he's from the Jewish nation, then you should think twice. Obviously, his God is on his side. Look how things are going already. And although it's not explicit in the verses, but seemingly Haman was arguing back. And then we left off the last verse. While they were still talking, the guards come to bring Haman to the second feast. And that's where chapter seven picks up. And it says, if you're following on the source sheet, it's uh, we're in chapter seven, verse one. And um, let me, before we go any further, just deposit the source sheet into the chat in case anyone doesn't have it. Okay, so verse one picks up and it says, so the king and Haman came to drink with Queen Esther. So here it says that they actually came to drink with Queen Esther. We mentioned that the first feast, Esther was still fasting. This is now at the end of her three days of fasting, and she's able to drink along with the, with the king and with Haman. And that was important because in order to get the king in the right mood, he had to, it wasn't, he, it couldn't be a one-sided drinking fest. It had to be that, that, that Esther was accepting drinks from the, from the king as well. And that is why, according to the Yosef Lekach, part of why she delayed in asking Ahasuerus for anything last time, kind of, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't an even playing field because she wasn't fully able to participate in the feast. She was still fasting. And now they're coming to drink with her. She has agreed next time, the next day, she's going to be drinking with them. She's going to be part of it. And, uh, and this time will be the, you know, the ideal time, hopefully, to ask the king. Now the king comes, how does he feel about Haman at this point? He's coming with Haman, it says. So it kind of depends how you understand the previous episodes. According to the Malbim, the king had discovered that Haman had tricked him with regards to, to, to saving the king's life. The way the Malbim had explained was that Haman had taken credit for saving the king from Big Sun and Saresh. And now the king on that night, when they're reading from the, the, the Chronicles, he realizes it was Mordechai, it wasn't Haman. So the king is quite angry already with Haman 
when Haman shows up in his palace that night, he, he sends Haman off on to, to guide Mordechai around town. And he's already angry with him because he realizes that Haman tricked him. So that's one perspective. Alternatively, if you don't understand that way, and then there's nothing specifically um, wrong between Achashverosh and Haman. Achashverosh is okay with Haman. If anything, Achashverosh had suspected Haman and Esther of plotting something. That's why they invited him to this feast. That they must have been, been in cahoots together. And but now he's reassured because he realizes that that Esther actually wasn't. He's reminded Esther was involved in saving his life. Esther was the one who told Morda, who, who told um, the king about how his life was in danger earlier on. So now he's actually more comfortable with Esther. He doesn't think she has anything against him. And if she doesn't have anything against him, she must not be plotting with Haman. And so they come together, the king and Haman come together, and there's nothing between them at this point. Everything is fine as they walk into the feast. Verse two, and the king said to Esther also on the second day during the wine feast, what is your petition, Queen Esther, and it shall be given to you? And what is your request, even up to half the kingdom, and it shall be granted? So once again, the king, I think for the third time now, asks Esther, what is it that you request? What is it that you want? Now, in this, in this verse, actually, there's one very subtle change. Um, there's a couple, but, but the one that we'll, we'll focus on is when he asks her, what is your petition? He says her name here. The previous times, he didn't say, what is your petition, Queen Esther? He just said, what is your petition? And it shall be given to you. What is your request? Why does he add in Queen Esther? So one idea is that he's naming her Queen Esther, meaning... He, the last party, he was a little suspicious of what was going on with her. He didn't speak to her in a respectful way, necessarily. He wanted to know. He was very curious. What, what is it that you, that you want? But he wasn't as respectful because he actually was a little suspicious of why she's inviting Haman and what's going on. So he didn't say Queen Esther last time around. But now, he's, he, again, he's reminded she saved his life. She has nothing against him. And she says, there here, he, he says, Queen Esther. But furthermore, the Yosef Lekach suggests that he was also, also withdrawing a little bit in his offer. Originally, he was thinking, you know, what could she possibly ask for? So ask for something for herself? Well, anything I give her, I'm really, it's, you know, she's my wife. So what, what's hers is mine. And we're a couple. And what could she possibly ask for? She'll ask for something for someone else. She doesn't have anyone else. She, she doesn't even know who her parents are. So he wasn't afraid that she might ask for something too big because she didn't have anyone else to ask for. She didn't know who her nation was. She didn't know who her parents were. That's what she had told him. And, uh, and for herself, anything he gives her, he's just giving back to himself, basically. But in the meantime, he realized, actually, that uh, she does have someone else in her life, and that's Mordechai. Mordechai, who raised her. Originally, he hadn't thought about that. Then he, was, he, he realized, and that's partially why he gave Mordechai such a reward, was he wanted to have paid back Esther, you know, whatever Esther, he thought Esther might ask about Mordechai. Well, I already, I already rewarded Mordechai. You can't ask about that. But now he's still a little nervous. She might ask about Mordechai. So he's telling her now, what do you want, Esther? What do you want for you? Don't ask me for other people. Just ask me for you. That's what I'm willing to grant at this point. So that's why he says her name over here. And, uh, and now we'll see how Esther responds, because now is the key moment in the Megillah 
where she's going to reveal that Haman is trying to kill her, etc. But we, when we approach this, we really have to go back a little bit to when Haman first launched his plans to annihilate the Jewish people, when he met with Ahasuerosh, um, actually, just a few days ago in, in, in the chronology here, just, just a couple of days ago, um, three days ago, four days ago, maybe. And, uh, and he shared his plot with Ahasuerosh, and then they had the letter signed and sent out. So we discussed at the time, in quite in depth, did Ahasuerus know exactly what was going on from the beginning? Was Haman fully open with him about what nation he was trying to destroy and, uh, and that he was fully trying to, to annihilate them? Or was he um, was, was Haman tricking Ahasuerus? Because depending on which of those understandings we have, the next verses will have to read slightly, slightly differently. So one approach we said was from the, really based on the Talmud and the Midrash, and that's the approach that the Manos HaLevi, Rav Shlomo Al-Kabetz takes, and that is that more, Ahasuerus was totally in on this. He hated the Jews as much as Haman, if not more. He was very happy for, you know, he had a pile of dirt he needed to get rid of, the, the Jews, and Haman had a pit that he needed to fill, and, uh, and they, they, were, they, they were equally, um, equally happy to, to annihilate the Jews. And there was, and Haman didn't trick Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus knew exactly what was going on. That is the way that the Manos Halevi says it based on the Talmud and the Midrash. The other approach was maybe a little bit more of a, what we call pshat, like a simple reading of the text, which was that Haman didn't even say which nation he was talking about. There is a certain nation. You don't even need to know who it is. They're so insignificant. You don't even know, know who they are. And they're, but they're terrible to have in the kingdom. They don't follow the laws. And he, he said all of this, all this slander about the Jewish people. And he said, We're, let me write to cause them to be lost. Meaning, in Ahasuerus' mind, that they should become assimilated into the people. We'll launch a plan to, 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 to just totally assimilate them into our nation. They'll abandon all their, all their heritage, all their laws. They'll become just like all the other Persians. That's what, that's what Haman had told Ahasuerus. But then, when he actually sent out the letters, that's not what they said. When he sent out the letters, they said, we are going to, on the 13th of Adar, we're going to rise up and destroy this nation. We'll come back to the letters a little bit later again. But he didn't, he, he's, the letters said, we're going to annihilate them. So he didn't follow exactly what he had told Ahasuerus. So these are two approaches. One is Ahasuerus knew exactly what was going on. One is that Haman was pulling the wool over his eyes and had told him, didn't even tell him which nation, and told him he's going to assimilate them and never told him that he was planning to annihilate them. So now let's see, based on those two approaches, what, um, what Esther says. So Ahasuerus says, Esther, what is it that you desire? And verse five, um, sorry, verse three, and Queen Esther replied and said, if I have found favor in your eyes, O king, and if it pleases the king, may my life be given me in my petition and my people in my request. Give me my life and give me my people. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. 
Now, had we been sold for slaves and bondswomen, I would have kept silent, for the adversary is no consideration for the king's loss. So we'll have to explain those, those words. Um, so let's, let's go, let's break it down slowly and try to understand what is Esther's response here. So first of all, um, she says, may my life be given me in my petition and my people in my request. Now, what's the bigger deal? A nation or just her? So she puts herself first. She says, let my life be saved and, and my people. So what was she saying? What was she telling the king? So it's actually very, very fascinating. Um, the way that a number of commentaries understand Amanas Alevi is that she was saying, Achashverosh, we've been here before. Remember your previous queen Vashti. Remember she did something that you didn't like. And you actually, I mean, she's not necessarily saying all this because she doesn't necessarily know all the details, but somebody recommended that you kill her. Who was that? That was Memuchan. But Memuchan, our sages teach us, was Haman. So that was Haman. Haman has a record already. Haman told you to kill Queen Vashti. Haman wanted you to get rid of your previous queen. Well, guess what? Haman is after me as well. So he drew up this whole plan that he slandered this whole nation to you. It could be you didn't like them anyways, but, but this is all initiated by Haman. And what does he really want? He wants to get rid of your queen. This is all about me. Just like he wanted to get rid of your last queen, he wants to get rid of this queen. This is all about me. So that's why she puts herself first. She says, again, the king doesn't care for the Jewish people, right? So she says, he's, uh, she says, give me my life, but my, may my life be given to me in my petition and my people, because the people are just a cover-up for Haman. Haman's trying to, 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 to make this about the Jews. Really, it's about me. Really, he just wants to get rid of me because he, he wants to get rid of your queen again. Why he doesn't ever likes the queen, maybe he wants his daughter to be the queen, whatever his motives are, but clearly this guy has a record and he's after me. And this is something that, uh, you know, this, this is something that touches Ahasuerus. This is something that, that really shakes him. Um, and then she says, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain. What does she mean they've been sold? So you remember Haman offered money to Ahasuerus to sort of buy the rights to destroy the Jews. Now, Ahasuerus didn't, didn't uh, accept the money, but the commentaries explained that it was as if he accepted it. He kind of gave it back. He sold them and then gave Haman back the money. He said, you keep the money. But he sold the rights to Haman, so to speak, to rid the, to, to, to annihilate the Jewish people. And, uh, and so she, she, she mentions that here. That's how some understand. Others say she's not crazy because that, that implicates the king in this. She, he was sold. Who sold them? You know, that implicates Ahasuerus. So that's not what she meant. She, what she meant by we have been sold was just that we have been sort of given over to this. This is our fate. But she wasn't actually accusing the king of being involved in any way. That wouldn't be very smart at this juncture to try to implicate Ahasuerus in this in any way. And she says, you know, if I had been sold for slaves and bondswomen, I'd be silent. That would make sense. 
for you as the king, who, you know, you can always be happy with more slaves. That actually has a benefit to you. But that's not what Haman did. Haman is trying to, Haman doesn't care about you, Ahasuerus. For the adversary, the, the enemy here, Haman, he has no consideration for the king's loss. He doesn't care about you. If he cared about you, he would, number one, he would have sold us, he would have recommended that you keep us as slaves, not that you get rid of us. There go all the tax dollars and you don't even get anything for it. You don't even get slaves. You don't even get workers. He obviously doesn't care about you, Ahasuerus. And furthermore, she was saying that, um, you know, he wants to get rid of your next queen. It wasn't so popular when he got rid of your first queen. You had to make a whole search for another queen. All these girls had to come to the palace. People were not happy with you about that. That did not win the favor of the people of the kingdom. You're going to have to do that. He wants to get rid of your next queen now. You're going to have to do that again. And you're going to lose even more favor from the people. Again, your enemy has no consideration for the king's loss. Hama has no consideration for the king's loss. Now, I should mention, she hasn't yet mentioned who she's talking about, right? That's going to be the next step. This person that she's talking about has no consideration for the king's loss. And then Ahasuerus is going to ask, you know, who is this that you are talking about? And she's going to identify it as Haman. Now, this approach where she makes this all about her, it's all about the queen. He's trying to kill your queen. This helps us understand, helped me understand a very difficult question about the Megillah, which is, so when Esther is first taken to the palace, uh, Mordechai tells her, don't tell who you are. Don't tell your nation. Don't tell your, your lineage. Don't reveal your identity. Now that we can understand, either it was because, as some commentaries say, if he would find out that she was from royal lineage, he would for sure accept her. She came from King Shaul. She was a descendant of a Jewish king. It, that would increase her chances of being selected. Mordechai and Esther did not want her to be selected. Don't reveal where you come from. Some commentaries go the opposite. If Esther was taken to the palace, was one of the few people chosen to actually be taken to the palace, approved to be one of the, 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 you know, the top choices for queen, this is obviously God's hand that this is meant to be, and we shouldn't do anything to spoil her ability to be selected. And therefore, we should not tell them that, uh, that, you're, that you're Jewish. That would ruin our chances of you being queen. So they go, it's, it's two opposite approaches, but we understand originally why they didn't, why Mordechai said, don't reveal your identity. But once she settled in, you know, she's been queen for five years. Ahasuerus did all these things to try to appease her and try to convince her to reveal her identity. Why didn't she reveal her identity? Now, to, you know, to build the question out even more, wouldn't it have been so much better if Ahasuerus knew that she was a Jew from the beginning? If he had known, then maybe none of this would have happened. Haman would have never been able to even, you know, get to where he is now if everybody knew that the queen was Jewish. Why was it to their advantage? Why was it a good thing that she didn't reveal? It sounds like that just messed things up. So I, I was thinking that, no, I think that we can say that had they known from the start that she was Jewish, that wouldn't have stopped Haman. 
he would have had to adjust his plans. He would have had to account for that, that the queen's Jewish. So he would arrange in such a way everybody should be annihilated except for the queen. He would have worked it out. He was a cunning fellow. Let's wipe out all the Jews except the queen. Okay? He could have found a way. But the fact that, that he didn't know that she was Jewish and that he was including her in his plan was ultimately his undoing. It's only because it's only because nobody knew she was Jewish and therefore he wasn't, he wasn't able to make an exception for her. She was included in his plan of annihilation. Because of that, that's how now she's able to turn it around and say, he's after me, Achashverosh. Achashverosh hates the Jews. She can't just say, please save the Jews. He, does, he hates the Jews, according to the, according to the monoslave, according to the Talmud. That's not going to help. But if she makes it about her, he's trying to get me, just like he did to your first queen Vashti, then that's able to get Ahasuerus's attention. And it's only because of that, it's only because she never revealed her identity that she's able to do that, to say that, to make that claim at this point. So that's why it was so important that she not reveal who she was up until this point. Okay, now that is all assuming, um, that is all assuming that Ahasuerus was involved in the plot. He knew exactly what was going on. That's how we will explain this, the big reveal over here. But, uh, but according to the Malbim, the other approach was that Haman tricked Ahasuerus and he convinced Ahasuerus, there's a certain nation, he didn't tell him who, and I'm not going to, I'm just going to assimilate them. He never said that he was going to kill them. And then he actually decided to send letters that said that he was going to kill them. He was tricking Ahasuerus. So now it's up to Esther to reveal that to Ahasuerus. And that's what she needs to do at this point. So when she says, we have been sold, I and my people to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. So number one, she's telling Ahasuerus that it's the Jewish nation that he's trying to wipe out. And I am a Jew. I am included in his decree. And not only that, though, but he lied to you. He, he the people were sold to be destroyed, to be slain, and to, to perish. Not like you thought that it was just to assimilate them. It's much more than that. He's, he tricked you, Ahasuerus. This man tricked you. And, uh, and, and that's how she's going to get Ahasuerus to turn on Haman. Um, and she says, again, you know, the last words of the, of the verse, the adversary has no consideration for the king's loss. So the way that, that the Malbim reads it is, the adversary is not worth anything to the king. Meaning there's no reason for you to keep Haman around. That's what she's saying with those words. In the English, it doesn't necessarily, the English translation here doesn't work as well, but in the Hebrew, you can translate it that way. The enemy is not worth anything to the king. The enemy is not worth anything. Get rid of him. He's not, he's not working in your interests. He is um, destroying your kingdom. He's out. He, not, not, nothing here is in your interest. His whole claim was he was just going to assimilate them for the benefit of the kingdom. But that's not what he's doing. He's trying to annihilate them. So that is how she reveals to Ahasuerus that there's, at this point, at least she, she doesn't say who she's talking about, 
She says, there's someone who's, who's out there to get you. Achashverosh now asks in verse five, Achashverosh said, and, and King Achashverosh said, and he said to Queen Esther, there's that double, we'll have to explain that in a moment. Who is this and where is he who dared to do this? It's a little bit strange that he doesn't know exactly who she's talking about. This is actually one of the Malbim's proofs that he tricked, that Haman tricked him because he didn't know exactly who this was about. You know, there's somebody who's, who's doing all these terrible things. Well, Achishverosh doesn't even know that it's Haman because that's not what Haman had told him. So, so this is a little bit of a proof for, for the, the, the approach. Again, the simple reading of the verses that actually Haman was tricking Achishverosh the whole time. In any event, it says, it's a strange verse. And King Achishverosh said, and he said to Queen Esther, what did he say? And then say. So the Malbim explains others also, it means he first turned to the other people, the, the, the chamberlains who, had, who I guess were, were still there. They had brought Haman. We'll see there's Charvona there. There's some chamberlains there. And he said, who, uh, who, who, who's she talking about? And they say, I don't know, right? And then he said to Esther, who is he talking about and where is he? So she says, and Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, the evil Haman. And Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. So she identifies it's Haman and he's right here. You know, when Achashverosh said, where is he? Already then, that's a hint that he's going to get, uh, who is this and where is he? I want to punish this person. And, uh, and Esther says, it's Haman and he's right over here. And Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. Why is he so terrified? Well, obviously, because he's, uh, he's about to, uh, you know, he's, he senses that this may be the end for him. Um, but he's also a little bit stuck. He's a little bit stuck here because, you know, Haman, again, he's very shrewd. He's very cunning. And he could talk his way out of anything. The problem is that it's going to be hard for him to talk his way out of this if if Esther and Achashverosh are both present. Because he can tell Achashverosh, he can say, everything I said about the Jews is true. I, I wasn't lying to you. They're, they're terrible. You know, this is, this is to your benefit. He can say that. But then he's just going to anger the queen more. And that won't be too good for him. On the other hand, if he turns to Esther and he starts supplicating her and saying, I didn't know you were Jewish. Had I known you were Jewish, I never would have done this. Well, then the king would say, really? You wouldn't have done this? I thought it was in my interest. I thought this was to my benefit to get rid of them. If she was Jewish, you wouldn't have done it? You, you made all these claims that this is what was needed for my kingdom. So he's stuck. He can't tell Achashverosh that, uh, that, that what he said was true, that would just anger Esther more. He can't tell Esther that had he known that she was Jewish, he wouldn't have done this because then that will anger Achashverosh and say, oh, you didn't care? I thought you were doing this for me. So he's kind of stuck and, uh, and he has nothing to say. And, uh, but he's smart, he's shrewd and he, he waits. And actually it's to his advantage and ultimately to his disadvantage that uh, he waits because 
the verse seven says, and the king arose in his fury from the wine feast to the orchard garden. So Ahasuerus was so angry, he gets up and he walks out. And now that actually gives Haman the chance, as it says, and Haman stood to beg for his life of Queen Esther, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. So, so now is his chance. He can actually beg for his life before Esther and say, oh, if I had known you were Jewish, I never would have done this because now Ahasuerus isn't in the room to hear him. But this was all divinely inspired because it's all part of the plan. Because as the next verse says, verse eight, then the king returned from the orchard garden to the house of the wine feast and Haman was falling on the couch upon which Esther was. And the king said, will you even, I'll use the word conquer the queen with me in the house. The word came out of the king's mouth and they covered Haman's face. Okay, a lot to unpack. So I'll have to do it slowly in those verses. But he's supplicating the, the queen. He's saying, you know, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And then he actually, this is to his detriment because he ends up falling over onto the bed. And then Ahasuerus sees that. And he thinks, as we'll see, that actually that Haman wants to kill Queen Esther. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but, uh, but ultimately, Again, this is part of his downfall. He's very shrewd. He's very smart. I can't, I can't say anything if they're both here. But, oh, great. Ahasuerus got up in his fury. He went out. Now's my chance. Well, actually, that's kind of his undoing again because he ends up falling over onto the, onto the bed, and that looks bad. Again, we'll tell you, it looks like a, it could be a, there's a number of ways to explain what that looks like. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, the king arose in his fury and he went to the orchard garden. So why did he get up and go to the orchard garden? So simply understood he needed some fresh air. He's so angry. He went out for some fresh air. The Talmud has a little bit of a backstory here. And the Talmud says it's on the source sheet. It says, and the king arose from the banquet of, the, of wine in his wrath and went into the palace garden. The next verse states the king returned out of the palace garden. The verses here compare his returning to his arising. Just as his arising was in wrath, so too his returning was in wrath. He didn't get any, uh, he didn't cool down at all when he went out there. Why not? I thought he went out to cool off, you know, to help get over his anger. So why did he come back just as angry? So the Talmud explains, for when he went out, he found ministering angels. He saw that there were angels out there. He didn't know they were angels who appeared to him as people, and they were uprooting trees from the garden. And he said to them, what are you doing? They said to him, Haman commanded us to do this. So the Talmud says that, they, that he encountered men, they were really angels, but they were men that were chopping down his orchard, his trees, I think to build gallows for, on behalf of Haman. And, uh, and they said that Haman ordered us to do this. Uh, the Midrash, the, the Targum, one of the translations, Midrash translations, has a slightly differently similar idea that actually Ahasuerus went out because he saw them doing this. He looked up, he sees there's people chopping down the trees, and he goes out to, to yell at them, right? And he comes back, he's very angry. Now, it's, it's a little weird, the whole thing. Um, what's, what's this, what, what are the sages teaching us with this? What's the message over here? 
And how is this fair to, to Haman? Now that we have to be fair to Haman, but that's actually the, the answer, is that the, the Manos Alevi quotes from Rabbi Eliezer from Garmiza, one of the medieval, early medieval commentaries, who says that, you know, this seems almost as if like God is lying to Ahasuerus. She's making it seem like Haman is worse than he is. He never ordered them to cut down the orchard, right? So why is he making him look worse? So the answer is, he says, this is what we call measure for measure. This is what Haman did. Haman made the Jewish people look worse than they are. He slandered them in front of Ahasuerus. So God is slandering Haman before Ahasuerus. It's measure for measure. And, uh, and in particular, in this type of case, it's, you know, the, 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 there's a verse in, uh, actually King David says in, in uh, I believe in the book of Shmuel, I think it's Samuel, that he says that, that God is crooked with the crooked. We find it by Yaakov, by, by Yaakov of you know, Jacob. He, he's crooked with his uncle Lavan. He kind of tricks him back. He can trick him back. That when you're dealing with the crook, you sometimes have to be crooked back. To, to get to the truth, right? If one person is going like that, so to get to the truth, you also have to be crooked to get it back on, 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 online. So, so that's, that's one of the attributes that God uses when dealing with, with people. And that's, that plays out over here, according to this Midrash, according to this passage in the Talmud, God was tricking Ahasuerus to make him even angrier at Haman, but that's measure for measure for what Haman himself did. Now, Ahasuerus comes back and Haman was falling on the couch upon which Esther was. Now, some understand that Ahasuerus thought that he was trying to force himself upon Esther. Now, the Manas Alevi says that doesn't make any sense because that is the last thing that Haman is going to do at this moment when, uh, when he's just been accused of trying to, to, to annihilate her. And why would, why would Ahasuerus think for a second that Haman was trying to force himself on Esther at this party? It just doesn't make any sense, he says. So he rejects that. But he brings two other possibilities. One is very interesting to me that... He said, one, one approach based on the Targum also, this translation, is that remember, just the night before, Haman had showed up in the middle of the night and was waiting in the courtyard of the palace. And Ahasuerus said, who's in the courtyard? And they said, oh, it's Haman. Now, Haman had come to ask for permission to hang Mordechai. Ahasuerus never got a chance to find out why Haman was there. Right? He never got a chance because he asked him instead, he asked, What should be done for the person, the man who the king wishes to honor? Haman gave his answer, and then Ahasuerus sent him to go get Mordechai. He never actually found out why Haman was there. So, what do you think he thinks Haman was there for? Esther invites Haman and the king to a party. And then Haman shows up at the palace in the middle of the night. It's a little suspicious, right? So, Ahasuerus thought that, that Haman was coming for a little rendezvous with Esther. So that's how this verse can be interpreted. He says, at this moment, he sees him there. He's pleading with Esther, but he says, you tried to force yourself on my wife or you tried to be with my wife last night. That's what you were trying to do. That's what he was accusing him. That's why he was extra angry with him at this, at this moment. That's one understanding of this verse. The other is just simply, he thought that, that Haman was trying to kill her. 
Either way, she, he may have been trying to kill her. Whether whatever he thought that he was there for the night before, now obviously things have turned for the worse for Haman. He's like sprawled out in front of her right now. And he says, are you trying to conquer my wife in my house? You're trying to kill my wife now? So Ahasuerus is extremely angry now with Haman. His wrath is boiling over. And the word came out of the king's mouth and they covered Haman's face. Why did they cover Haman's face? So the Ibn Ezra, Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra, medieval commentary explains that's what they did in Persia. When the king got very angry with someone, they said the, the, the law or, or the custom was that he didn't have to look at such a person. So they would cover that person's face. But this explained the commentaries. Rebchaim Kanievsky, the, the, um, the Yosef Lekach, this was part of the miracle, the fact that they cover his face. This is the shrewd and cunning Haman. If he gets a chance to talk, he can talk his way out of this. He can explain, I, I was just pleading for my life. I wasn't trying to do anything to her, right? He might be able to weasel his way out of this, but they immediately cover his face. They shut him down and he has no chance to explain his actions or try to justify what he's been doing. And this leads to the next verse, which says, verse number nine, then, then said Harvona, one of the chamberlains before the king, also behold the gallows that Haman made for Mordechai, who spoke well for the king, standing in Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on it. So Harvona says, oh, there's a gallows that Haman built for Mordechai, who spoke good of the king. It's 50 cubits high. Let's hang Haman on it. And the king says, hang him on it. And verse 10, and they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordechai, and the king's anger abated. Now, this verse, number nine, contains within it many important little miracles that uh, they all come together here. So you have to just you have to just keep in mind this is Haman. Haman, the slick-tongued Haman, he knows how to get out of things. It has to be quick. If he has a chance to, he's very powerful. He has lots of people on his side. If 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 his if his hanging is delayed, then who knows what can happen. But it's not delayed because he built a gallows for him. If you remember from last week, I think we mentioned, the verse says he built the gallows for him. The simple reading was for Mordechai. Really, he built it for himself. And that really plays out in this verse. So, so first of all, how did Harvona know that this gallows was for Mordechai? How I never had a chance to say? That's because, as we mentioned at the end last week, when he showed up to bring Haman to the feast, Haman was arguing with his family about whether he should still try to hang Mordechai or not. And because Harvona overheard that, so he knew that this gallows was meant for Mordechai. And, and he says, you, you want to know how bad this guy Haman is? He's trying to hang Mordechai. And... Mordechai is the guy that spoke good for the king. I mean, Mordechai is the one who saved the king's life. So it sounds like he wants to hang him because he saved your life. How could I mean, this, this Haman guy, he's terrible. He, he wants to hang the very person who saved your life. And not only that, it's standing in his courtyard outside his house. It's 50 cubits high. Everybody sees it. It's an embarrassment to you 
you were honoring Mordechai and having him paraded around the city and saying, this is what's done to the man where the king wishes the, to honor. And at the same time, Haman had a gallows for that same person in his courtyard. How embarrassing is that to you, the king? And, and not only that, but not only that, but he said, it's 50 cubits high and he nay, here it is. You can see it from the palace. And that's because Haman wanted, he built it high enough that he would be able to see when Mordechai was hanging. He knew he was going to the feast. He wanted to be able to see Mordechai hanging, but because they could see it, so seeing is believing, right? So that convinces Achashverosh that it's there, it's meant for Mordechai, and we're going to use it for Haman. And, uh, and indeed, they, he says, hang Haman. And then only after that, the king's anger abated. Had it abated before? Before he's hung? Who knows? He might have changed his mind. He's changed his mind before. But only once Haman is hung, is the, does the king's anger abate. Now, there's so many things that are just unbelievable about this, uh, this, this moment where Hamang meets his end, all the things we just mentioned, everything, you know, that the fact that the gal is already, and you can see it and they knew about it. But one other very important point we have to come back to, which brings us all the way back to the very first class, which is back to chapter one. In chapter one, there was someone else that was sentenced to death. And that was Vashti, right? Here, Hamang is sentenced to death. In chapter one, Vashti was sentenced to death. But their sentences are actually very different if we pay attention. If we go back to chapter one, and I put it on the source sheet right there and, and after verse 10. So it says, and the king said to the wise man who knew the times, for so was the king's word, to present the case before all who knew law and judgment. According to the law, what shall be done to Queen Vashti? And as much as she did not comply with the order of the king brought by the hand of the chamberlains. Ahasuerus calls his advisors and he calls in the judges. He says, what is the law? What does the law say should be done? Why doesn't Ahasuerus just decide? Because he can't, because he has to follow the law. But then Mamuchan declared before the king and he says, this is so terrible, da, da, da. And then in verse 19 there, Mamuchan, who is Haman, says, if it please the king, let a royal edict go forth from before him and let it be inscribed in the laws of Persia and Medea, let it not be revoked, that Vashti shall not come before King Ahasuerush. Now, you may recall when we learn chapter one, the commentaries say in slightly different ways, but we've mainly focused on the way the Malbim says it. The Malbim understood that that entire party was a chance, was an attempt by Ahasuerush to move from more of like a democratic monarchy to an absolute monarchy, to pull all the power into himself. And part of doing that was making an embarrassment of Vashti, saying my power doesn't come from Vashti, it comes from myself. And that kind of fell flat on its face when Vashti refused to come. However, however, Memuchan, Haman steps forward and says, you know what, Ahasuerus, we could still do this. We are going to give you all the power. 
And that's that verse. If it please the king, let a royal edict go forth from before him, let it be inscribed in the laws of Persia and Medea, and let it not be revoked. That you are now going to be able to put forth laws that are inscribed and not revoked. You, have the, you will be granted the right to make the laws, to decide the laws. The way the Vilna Gon learns is that previously Ahasuerus didn't have the right to decide in situations that he was directly involved in, that affected him directly, like the queen or like Haman, his advisor. But now, and, and his queen, Haman, Esther, he couldn't de decide in such cases. How, whatever he was granted some level of absolute power at that moment that he didn't previously have. And that verdict goes out. It's heard throughout the entire kingdom. And then they all agree. Verse 21, miraculously, and the matter pleased the king and the princes and the king did according to the word of Mamuchan. This went forward. From that moment on, the king didn't need permission to act in such a way. He didn't need permission to rule that his prime minister deserves to be hung. Who gave him that power? Memuchan gave him that power. Memuchan had the idea of how to proceed. It was signed by all the officials then. Memuchan hung himself. Haman, Memuchan is Haman, he hung himself. He gave the king the power. Imagine if the king didn't have that power. So Haman is very powerful in the king's court. If this goes to the, you know, before the judges, it's most likely that Haman is not getting hung. If this goes before his buddies on the council, he's going to get out of this. But he gave Ahasuerus the power to rule on this case, and Ahasuerus rules, and that's it. Hang him, and he's hung, and Ahasuerus's anger does not abate until after Haman is hung. Okay, and that concludes chapter seven. So now we can do a little bit of chapter eight. Chapter eight begins, let me just make sure I didn't miss anything here. Okay. Chapter eight begins. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther, the house of Haman, the adversary of the Jews. And Mordechai came before the king because Esther had told him what he was to her. Sorry, came before the king because Esther had told him what he was to her. And the king took off his ring, which he had removed from Haman, and gave it to Mordechai. And Esther placed Mordechai in charge of the house of Haman. So it's the same day, it says, on that day. And King Ahasuerus gives Esther the house of Haman. Simply understood, he wants to appease her. You know, he had suspected her of various things. And this is his way of, you know, he thought maybe she was plotting against him. Maybe she was involved with Hamang in some way. Now he understands what's going on and he wants to appease her. He gives her the house of Haman. Someone was just sentenced to death. His property becomes the property of the king and the king grants it to Esther. And Mordechai came before the king because Esther told him what he was to Now they know the connection. They knew somewhat of the connection before, but now it's clear they're actually related even. This is a, he's, they're cousins. And, uh, and now Mordechai is brought before the king. And not only that, but the king takes off his ring and gives it to Mordechai. So he basically takes the power that had belonged to Haman and he right now hands it over to Mordechai. 
and Esther placed Mordechai in charge of the house of Haman. So this is a very important step because Mordechai is being given power. He's being given power that he didn't even ask for. And Esther didn't ask for. They didn't even ask for this. But the tides are turning in their favor and Hashem, God is arranging for the future because it's not over yet. So we'll have to, we'll start discussing now, but we'll discuss more in depth in the last class next week. There's still this decree out there. They have to still work on that. It's not over yet. And the, the power that's being given to Mordechai is going to be very important. Now, the way the Yosef Lekach understands these verses is it's kind of telling us how it played out. See, really, Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman. Now, Esther wanted to give it to Mordechai. So in order to give it to Mordechai, she had to explain to Haman the connection why and why she's giving it sorry, not to Haman, to Ahasuerush, the connection and why she's giving it to him. So that's why um, she brings Mordechai before the king. It's really in order to place Mordechai in charge of the house of Haman. And once he was before the king, Ahasuerush says, I really like this guy, right? Now, he could be he knew him before. We talked about that earlier, at an earlier point that Esther already advised Ahasuerush to, to take him as a, an advisor or as a guard or something. But whatever, whether he knew him, he didn't know him as well. And now he sees him and he has an open, you know, there's an open position, right? Haman, he just lost his prime minister. And he thinks that, that Mordechai is a good man for the job. He's in the right place at the right time. And he gives him his ring. And this is going to be very important later for the Jewish people that Mordechai is in a position of power. And now the verse says in verse three, we'll read three through six now. And Esther resumed speaking before the king and she fell before his feet and she wept and beseeched him to avert the harm of Haman, the Agagite and his device that he had plotted against the Jews. Then the king extended the golden scepter to Esther and Esther arose and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleases the king and if I have found favor before him and the matter is proper before the king and I am good in his sight, let it be written to rescind the letters, the device, the plan of Haman, the son of Hamdasa, the Agagai, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I see the evil that will befall my people? And how can I see the destruction of my kindred? When does this happen? Is this the same day? Is this at a later juncture? So it's actually clear from some later, the later verses, pretty clear that this actually happens later. There is a break because the letters that are going to go out, we'll see what they say and what they are, but they go out on the, I think the 23rd of Sivan. So this 23rd of Sivan is the 23rd of the third month. We actually had left off on the 16th of the first month of Nisan. So this is about a month, um, I guess that's more than two months later. More than two months have passed um, when this seemingly when this episode now takes place. So let's just keep that in mind. And uh, that's, she continued to speak before him. She now comes back to him. In verse four there, it says that he extended the golden scepter to Esther and Esther arose. Now this is reminiscent of the time where she entered the king's chambers uninvited at risk of her own life. And he extended the scepter to her and he said, you know, granting her life. So is that going on here again? 
That's what it looks like, right? So some, under, some commentaries understand, indeed, that's what happened here. She was not invited to come again. And she once again risked her life to come back before the king because there was still some unfinished business regarding Haman's plot that had not been dealt with. Others understand that, no, she wouldn't have, she, that, that doesn't make sense. She wouldn't have left the palace in, and then had to come back without getting permission to be able to come back before the king. And when he raises his scepter here, it's just simply, you know, to say, get up, you know, not, this is, she's fine. She's not risking her life. She's fine. And actually the Manasalevi understands that back in verse, um, one of this chapter, when it says, and Mordechai came before the king, that actually the, the whole law about not coming before the king uninvited had been rescinded. And, uh, and Mordechai came before the king, and now Esther can come before the king freely. I believe some explain, actually, that that whole law was put in place by Haman as a way of keeping people away from the king, um, maybe even specifically Esther, because he had his suspicions about Esther, about Sure, her connection with Mordechai, whether he knew she was Jewish or not, but he had his suspicions. He wanted to keep her away. That that law existed as a result of Haman. Haman's gone. The law goes away. That's how some explain. So she comes before the king, and either way, she's really, you know, weeping. It says in verse three, she fell before his feet and she wept and beseeched him. Now, this is the first time that we see such strong language. Why is she all of a sudden so emotional? So this, this didn't happen the first couple of times before she, when she came before him. Why all of a sudden? So the Yosef Lekach, the Malbim, they explain, you know, time has gone by, as we mentioned, about two months. And Esther was hoping that Ahasuerus wouldn't, he already saved her life, but he, she had been hoping that he was going to deal with Haman's plot and get rid of the plot and rescind the letters, etc. But nothing had happened yet. So now she's really nervous. And she's especially nervous because Ahasuerus gave her Haman's house. You know, when you ask for something and the person gives you something else, well, there's a message there that says, no, you know, you're not getting that, but you can have a, you can have a house, right? <laughs> have something else, right? So she was actually very, very concerned that Ahasuerus had decided that he was not going to rescind the decree of Haman. She'd be safe, but not the people. So that's why she comes in so, um, so emotional. She fell before his feet. She wept. She calls on her emotion. She cries. She beseeches him with words. And she goes all in at this point because, because of that. She thought maybe the king had given up on this on, on, on her, on her people, and was not planning to intervene in any way. And, uh, and she comes and she basically makes two, two claims. Um, and what she, what she asks for is, in verse five, she says, let it be written to rescind the letters. Let it be written to rescind the letters. Um, so we have to really try to remember what these letters were. 
So the way that we explained it was that there were multiple letters. There was a letter that went out to all the people that said there's a certain nation that we're going to attack on the 13th of Adar. It didn't say who. There, and so everybody was waiting in the Hebrew, Leos to be ready for that day, the verse says. There was another letter that was sent to the governors. Some understand that it was able to be opened by the governor and it said it identified who the people were, the Jews, and they were going to tell the people on that day. Some understand that the governors couldn't even open it. Um, that's how the Malim understands. The governors got a letter with the king's seal that said on the 13th of Adar, you're going to open this letter and you're going to find out which nation it is that we're going to wipe out. Now, word started to leak out already and that the Jews, the Jews found out and others found out, but that's what it, what it said. So, so, so Esther says, you should recall that letter. Call back the letter that identifies the Jews. Call that letter back. Now, even though, as we'll learn, there's a law in Persia that when the king makes a law, it can't be rescinded. And she knew that. And that's going to be how the king responds to her. But she wanted to make two claims. Number one, you didn't even make this law. This came from Haman. So in terms of your own integrity, you should be very comfortable calling it back because this wasn't from you. This was from Haman and Haman tricked you. And in terms of the people calling it back, so she said, they don't even, they, they don't have the law yet. It just says to be ready for that day. They're, they're sealed. So it's not a law yet for them. So she's argued that it should be able to be called back. Now, Ahasuerus is going to refuse that. We'll have to see eventually how that plays out. But, uh, but that, that's her plan, at least. And, uh, and she makes two claims in verse 6. She says, how can I see the evil that will befall my people? And how can I see the destruction of my kindred? She's talking about two things. And these two things she also refers to in verse 5. She says, the device of Haman, the son of Amdasa, um, and sorry, back in verse three, beseech him to avert the harm of Haman and his plan against the Jews. So there's the harm, the evil that will befall my people, and then the plan for destruction. What the, the, the Malbam explains is that things were, were already bad. We mentioned this Midrash that already in the marketplaces, a Persian would see a Jew and he'd just mug him or beat him up because why not? You, uh, you know, you're going to die anyways in a, in, a, in a little while. So I'm just going to steal your thing. So there was already um, a lot of anti-Semitism going on. And so Esther pleads, we need to stop that now. We can't wait till later to stop that because the Jews are in danger right now. And, uh, and we certainly have to stop that plot that is planned for the 13th of Adar. So that's what she pleads with the king. And we will wait till next week to find out how the king responds and how everything else will play out and how we have a Purim holiday to celebrate. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you.